Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, and everybody in between, welcome to another episode of the Jake Botel Sports Experience. My name is Jake, and you are listening to my sports experience. <laughs> uh, a Merry Christmas, Happy Holidays, uh, whatever it is that you celebrate. I hope it was lovely, um, and most importantly, I hope it was full of great sport. Uh, been plenty of cricket to watch if you're a soccer fan there's been plenty of that too if you're an nfl fan there's been plenty of that as well and all sorts of other things um so getting into some nfl mvp chat today i haven't done a lot of nfl coverage recently um but i'm going to talk some mvp stuff today uh, and then we're going to get into the first month of the IBU World Cup, uh, the biathlon, which is underway at pace. It's currently in a uh, two-week Christmas break, which is nice because I managed to catch up on everything that I'd missed. I've now watched all the races. Um, but before we get into all of that, I want to direct your ears um, to the last two episodes that will be popped up in the JBSE feed. And those are two episodes of the will blitz make sure you go on and check out cousin will's excellent nfl analysis previewing recapping all the things some excellent segments about um the best wide receiver and quarterback combos each week um he's done some chat about the mvp race and all that sort of thing so make sure you go and check out the will blitz uh, because will is doing fantastic work there um Let's get into my NFL MVP thoughts. I'm not really going to recap any games this week. I just talk about um, the, the the battle for MVP. It's interesting because obviously Brock Purdy, you know, not an ideal game this weekend. Just gone. Um, Lamar Jackson performs pretty well. There's the talk about Christian McCaffrey. There's some outside buzz about Tyreek Hill. I just wanted to look at those four guys essentially because I think those are the four um, that have the most prominent chances of of getting their name um, on that 2023 NFL MVP trophy. So it's interesting because like one bad game, you know, is, is sort of the 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 talk about Brock Purdy. It's like, oh, one bad game and, and now, you know, it's it, it's all over. And it was a pretty atrocious game. 56.2% uh, of passes completed, 255 yards, no touchdowns, four interceptions. Um, uh, now, let's face it, it's not the only, you know, down patch Brock Purdy's had this season. Uh, with this included, there's been three games this year where he's thrown more interceptions than touchdowns. Um, on the year, he's got 4,000. And 50 yards passing, 29 touchdowns, and 11 interceptions. Obviously, the performance this weekend was was pretty bad. Uh, you, you don't get much worse than was and four four picks. Um, but my main gripe at the early in the season was that Brock Purdy wasn't in the NFL MVP conversation. It's not that I have ever, you know, felt he has to be the MVP. It's that he wasn't being included in the conversation when he was clearly playing 
at a really high level uh, in the first half of this season. So I've been happy with the fact that he's just in the conversation. He doesn't have to win for me to think um, that, you know, he's had a valid claim to be considered in that discussion. So um, I'm, I, I guess, you know, my question is now, now what happens if he goes and throws four touchdowns, no interceptions next week? What if he throws, you know, four, you know what I mean? Like what happens next? We're such a week to week reactive, um, you know, the NFL fan base and let's face it, most sporting fan bases um, are, are so reactive week to week. One guy has a good week. One guy has a bad week and suddenly the whole thing's flipped on its head. Um, you know, the most valuable player shouldn't just be what have you done for me lately? Shouldn't be just what they've done the last two weeks or three weeks that we can remember. It's the balance of the season. Who was the most valuable player on balance across the season? Um, I'm happy that Brock Purdy's in the conversation, but I think if you looked on balance across the whole season, um, there's probably a couple of players who have performed more consistently across the season. But I'm really happy he's in the conversation. That's my key takeaway about Brock Purdy. He's in the conversation, so I'm happy um, because I just wanted that level of acknowledgement for his excellent performance. And yeah, it was a terrible game. But, you know, people saying, oh, is Sam Darnold going to now come in and take the job? Let's just wait and see. Uh, let's just wait and see on that one. Um, players, great players have bad games. Um, hello, Patrick Mahomes. Uh, I'd like to talk about another quarterback who was in that game, Lamar Jackson, 252 passing yards, 45 rushing yards, I think on seven carries. Two passing touchdowns, no turnovers, crucially, for Lamar. Uh, that has been an issue for me with Lamar um, as a player. You know, he's an absolute undeniable game-wrecking, you know, game-winning, game-changing talent, all of those things. But, you know, I've seen, as a Steelers fan, I've seen uh, plenty of performances from Lamar Jackson where he has handed the Steelers some games, you know, with multiple turnover halves um at crucial times so that's that's always been a bit of a, a caveat for me uh, on lamar jackson however you know in a game like this we have you know you you outperform your opposite number um but even going back to games like the rams uh, a couple of weeks ago 316 passing yards three touchdowns one interception 11 carries for 70 yards on the ground and is you know, essentially untackleable. On the season, he's got 4,143 total yards. He's about 758 rushing, and then the rest, you know, 3,300, whatever it is, um, in passing. So those 4,143 yards have come on 578 touches, whether that's passing attempts or rushing attempts. It's going at 7.2 yards per touch, 24 touchdowns. Uh, he's got 13 total turnovers, you know, which is still relatively high, I think, if you compared it to some other quarterbacks. I could be wrong on that one. But anyway, seven interceptions, which is good. Seven interceptions through 15 or 16 weeks or whatever it is. Um, but six fumbles lost. I think Lamar is one of those players, you know, his, his candidacy, you know, rests on 
you know, it's a, it's a sort of a tired phrase, but the old the old eye test. You watch Lamar, and it's like this this guy's like, you know, he can turn what should be a sack into a twenty five yard gain. He's you know, most of the time untackleable. Like I remember when he first came into the league and people were saying, oh, well, he's not going to last long. He'll take a couple of good hits and that'll be it, which is kind of my criticism on um, Jaden Daniels from LSU. It's, oh, he'll take a couple of good licks and that'll be it. But if you can't touch him, uh, then it's hard to get injured. And I think that's one of the things that is incredible about Lamar is just his elusivity. Um just when you think he's going to be tackled, he manages to sidestep, weave his way out of trouble, and you know what should have been an eight-yard loss is now a ten-yard gain. I think that's what makes Lamar so valuable. And if we're talking about the most valuable players, um, then Lamar Jackson has to be in the conversation. And I understand why he is. Even if some people might look at his stats and go, "Well, it doesn't really pop off the screen, does it?" You know, um, you know, twenty-four total touchdowns that's not a heap you know we've had mvps like patrick mahomes throw you know 40 or 50 just year by year basis let's look at what it is year by year instead of constantly having to compare them to previous seasons mvp that it's the most valuable player this season so that's lamar i think you you can't help but think of lamar's value when you see him on the field ignore you know ignoring the stats it can be an up and down ride at times i wouldn't say he's the most consistent player um but in terms of value it's hard to go past him and that leaves us uh i want to talk about two non-quarterbacks christian mccaffrey and tyreek hill tyreek hill nine catches 99 yards versus dallas this weekend in a win for the dolphins he's had Six games this year of less than 100 receiving yards, but he's had five games this year with more than 150 receiving yards. I think, you know, you'd probably find this looking at most wide receivers. You know, they're going to have big games. They're going to have quiet games. Um, And if you dive into the nitty-gritty, the quiet games aren't always without impact either. you know, one crucial catch is all it can take for you to have had a good game. On the season, he has 106 catches, 1,641 receiving yards, 12 touchdowns. He's going at 11.2 yards per target, which is pretty insane. That's, that's, yeah, that's insane. Uh, He's on track to break his personal best for receiving yards, which he only set last year. So he, he, he would be back-to-back years of breaking his PB. He only needs, I think, 70-odd yards in his last two games, Tyreek, to break that. So what he's doing is is insane, and it's kind of funny that he probably get doesn't get talked about as much, and I think that could be as, you know, a product of, you know, it's a passing league. It's a passing league, and so you know there's a lot of wide receivers who put up high receiving numbers. And it, it, what's interesting is that Tyreek Hill is in the fringe of that MVP conversation, but his quarterback isn't. You know, there's definitely an argument at times of like, well, if Justin Jefferson or whoever puts up you know 1,800 yards and 15 touchdowns, 
well, Kirk Cousins or that, you know, the quarterback is going to be the one that's in the MVP conversation. You can think about this with Tyreek Hill or Travis Kelsey um, with Mahomes. You know, were there years in Kansas City where you could have said Kelsey was the most valuable player or Tyreek Hill, but because Mahomes is throwing it to them, he's the one in the MVP conversation. And I'm not saying Patrick Mahomes wasn't an MVP candidate, uh, a valid MVP winner, but I'm just saying normally when a receiver is putting up career best numbers, their quarterback is also going to be in the conversation, if not sort of stealing votes from them. Not really the case this year with Tua. Um, Tyreek, his candidacy is sort of floating uh, above and separate to anything that Tua has done. So I I like Tyreek Hill. Um, I think he is a valuable player. Do I think he's the most valuable player? Probably not. He wouldn't be my vote for it. Uh, I think he's, you know, the most valuable wide receiver. Or he's at least in that conversation. There's some others, though. Puka Nakua's put together a pretty incredible season as well. Um, You know, there are some other wide receivers around the league who are doing exceptional things. And there's that argument about it's a passing league. And so numbers are going to be higher. Um, But I think... You know, Tyreek, a bit like Brock Purdy. I think Tyreek should be in the conversation. But I think there's a dude um, who not only should be in the conversation, I think he should be at the top of the conversation, and that's Christian McCaffrey. 14 carries for 103 yards, six catches and 28 yards, and a rushing touchdown this weekend um, on a day where his QB really struggled. He's only had three games this season with less than 100 total yards. And in those three games, he scored at least one touchdown. I think he went one touchdown, two touchdowns, one touchdown in those three games where he had less than 100 total yards. On the year, he has 1,932 total yards, 21 total touchdowns, 321 touches. He's rushing at 5.4 yards per carry and catching 80% his targets in the receiving game. Now, admittedly, a lot of those are, you know, dump-offs and that sort of thing to McCaffrey, so you should be catching 80% of them. But the fact remains, he's going to cross 2,000 total yards. He's already crossed 20 touchdowns. Uh, I think Christian McCaffrey has taken what was a really, you know, brilliant, 49ers offense the last few, you know few seasons and and his arrival has turned them into an all-time an all-time juggernaut and the way I guess I would frame my thoughts about most valuable player and that's this you know say you're you you've got a a property portfolio and Maybe it's not that good. I don't know. Maybe it's, you know, it's sort of average. And you can pluck a property, the most valuable property on the street and put it onto your portfolio. Your portfolio naturally instantly increases in value because you've taken the most valuable property and made it yours. And so your assets just immediately got better. What you have 
got better. If we look at this in terms of teams, which of these players could you pluck now and put on any team? And that's the thing with the, you know the the idea of you know taking the most valuable property and putting it on in any portfolio. Any portfolio will get better by having the most valuable property. So in NFL terms, there's 32 teams. Which of these players, if you just drop them in cold, instantly makes that team better? As much as I really like what Brock Purdy's done in San Fran, I don't think he does. I think there's a number of locations where you could drop him in and it really wouldn't move the needle uh, in, in a significant way. Um, I think he operates the offense brilliantly. I think he operates the offense even when he has to improvise brilliantly. I think he has, um, you know, some great, like really terrific instincts and he is a playmaker, but let's face it, he's making plays with a superstar group of weapons. You know, as a, for instance, I'm not sure that if you put Brock Purdy in Pittsburgh, I'm not sure if you put Brock Purdy in the New York Giants, I'm not sure if you put, you know, Brock Purdy on the Arizona Cardinals, that he really moves their fortunes much one way or, or another. I think it's a perfect marriage for him and San Fran. Um, so to me, he's very valuable, but I don't think he's the most valuable because I don't think you can drop him anywhere and he makes an immediate difference. Tyreek Hill, can I drop him in anywhere and make that team immediately better? Maybe. On paper, you would say, yes, any team that has Tyreek is going to be better. And I think that's true. I think that's true. But say we put Tyreek Hill on the Arizona Cardinals, does that make them go from what they are now to something completely different? I don't think so. The trouble with it, with a really great wide receiver, and there's no doubt Tyreek Hill is, and he'll be going to the Hall of Fame and all those things, is that we've seen him, you know, we've seen teams throughout time blanket him if they know he's the outlet. You know, I think of the Bucks and other teams uh, in a couple of seasons go, well, we're just going to, you're going to have to, you're just going to get checkdowns. We're not going to let you damage us deep. We're not going to play hard up pressed against you. We're going to let you have the easy catch and then we're going to rally to you and tackle you. And, you know, good teams can do that really well. I think Tyreek would make most teams better. But I, I I guess I just look, there's some talented wide receivers around that have not made average offenses any better when they've joined. I think there's some examples. I, I think even, you know, in Pittsburgh, I think there's some great examples. George Pickens is incredibly talented. And I'm not saying he's Tyreek Hill, but he, I, I think you look at him, he's got all the building blocks of being a top 10 wide receiver. And his success has been really dependent on where the ball is thrown. And is the ball coming to me when I get open, when I get into a favorable favorable matchup? Is the quarterback going to throw me the ball? And that's why 
it's hard for me to say that you drop a great wide receiver like Tyreek Hill into any situation and he's instantly going to make them better because he has to rely on someone getting the ball to him. Which leaves us with two players who I think tick this box for me. I think both Lamar Jackson and Christian McCaffrey, you could drop them in to any situation and they would make that team better from day one. Um, and I think it's, it's easy to understand why, because they both offer two skills. Christian McCaffrey can catch and he can run. Um, Lamar Jackson can throw and he can run. Lamar Jackson is the sort of quarterback that, that can help you overcome a lack of receiving weapons. Lamar Jackson is the sort of, you know, player who can help you overcome a patchy offensive line because he can make up for their inefficiencies and their deficiencies. Christian McCaffrey, you know, you can hand him the ball and if you make a hole for him, he will exploit it. If you don't make a hole for him, he will probably exploit it. Uh, if they're stopping the run, you can get him involved in the passing game. I, I think both of these players fit the criteria that if you drop them into any of the 32 rosters, they would make that team better from day one. And that's why, the, for me, right now, the MVP race comes down to Christian McCaffrey and Lamar Jackson. Um, Dak Prescott not getting a mention here, but um, a little bit like Brock Purdy. I think that there's been some games where he's looked incredible, and then he's also had his own games where it's been like, you know, and you got to look at the whole body of work. People are like, oh, but since week whatever, he's played amazingly. It's like, well, fair enough, but, you know, the, the, the most valuable player award is awarded for your body of work across the season. It's not just, well, he played really well between, you know, week six and week 14. Apart from that, you know, he was a dumpster fire. Um, you know, I'm not saying that Prescott's a dumpster, been a dumpster fire, but like, it's got to be the body of work for me. Um, and so I'm, yeah, Prescott's not really in. I, I think he's one I probably could have included in the conversation, but there's a lot of players you could include in the conversation. I thought these were the four that were closest to the pin. And I think it's between McCaffrey and Lamar Jackson for me. And I wouldn't be mad at either, um, but I think it's McCaffrey. I think in 2023, I don't think there's many running backs making the same impact that Christian McCaffrey is um, in the running and passing game. I think maybe we could rectify the wrongs of the past. I think Todd Gurley um, de deserved an MVP award in a couple of those seasons with the Sean McVay Rams, probably 2017 being the one off the top of my head. Um, so I think Christian McCaffrey deserves it. I, th I think it's hard to argue against him when he's been so exceptional. Only three games with less than 100 total yards, and he scored four touchdowns in those three games. Um, so that would be my pick right now. Christian McCaffrey, I'd have Lamar Jackson a close second, and the rest you could sort of throw a blanket over and say they're all pretty close to each other, um, but they've got their own you know, cons that go with the pros. And I guess that would be the thing I'd say with Lamar is that to me, I still think, and maybe it's just the thing, bias 
or the advantage of having watched him quite a bit um, in the AFC North is there's been plenty of games where he's contributed a lot of turnovers that have lost a game. But you can argue back against that and say there's a lot of games where the Ravens wouldn't have even been in the game if it wasn't for Lamar's playmaking ability. So that's where I'd have it right now. McCaffrey by a whisker, Lamar in second, and the rest in a chasing pack. If you agree, good for you. If you don't, good for you. That's the beauty of sport. We can all have different opinions. Um, now I want to pivot into talking some IBU World Cup, the biathlon season well and truly underway. We've had four weeks of competition by my count. Two, you know, the best part of two weeks in Ostersund in Sweden. We've had uh, a week in Hotfilsen in Austria, and we've had a weekend in Lenzerheide in Switzerland. Lenzerheide, Lenzerheide, I don't know. Um, so an interesting season so far. You know, there was much change and, and jostling for position at the start of the season, and then it feels like Norwegian normalcy has sort of um, returned. So just to run you through the results in week one, or well, week one and two, the event in Sweden, in Ostersund. We started with a single mix relay. We had Sweden win that one, Norway finishing second, France third. We had the mixed relay, the longer version. France won that one, Norway finished second, Italy in third. So two runner-up positions for Norway behind Sweden and France. In the individual events, we had the women's individual, Lisa Vitozzi defeated Preuss of Germany. Preuss finishing just 0.1 of a second behind Vitossi. It was an amazing finish, but you got to feel for Preuss just one second, uh, 0.1 second behind, um, you know, what's that, quarter of a ski length or something. You had Vanessa Voigt finishing in third, so good showing from the Germans there behind the Italian in the men's individual. Speaking of Germans, you had Roman Reese finish in number one position, Strello of Germany in two, Johannes Thingness Bow finishing in third, 25 seconds behind the race winners. But third, you know, pretty respectable. Johannes had a slow start last year um, in Contiolati. So I sort of thought, oh, well, it'll, it'll even itself out. When we had the women's relay, Norway won that, then Sweden, then Germany. He had nine misses for each of uh, Sweden and Germany, which really helped uh, Norway out there. The men's relay, Norway won, France in second, Germany in third. So the Germans take out third place in both the women's and men's relays. Norway first in both. That led us to the final individual events of Ostersund, uh, which were a couple of sprints and then the pursuits. In the women's, we had Lou Jean Monod win the sprint over Notten of Norway and Anna Kliev of Norway. We'll talk a bit about that in, in, in shortly. Um, the Norwegians, like they need it, have had some nice performances from some fringe and up-and-coming um, biathletes this season. But Lou jean too good in the sprint for Notten and Anna Kliev. In the men's sprint, now this is where I started to think that we were going to see you know, Johannes start putting it together. It was in the sprint events. He was so dominant last year in the sprints, the pursuits, the mass starts. But it was Philip Norath of Germany who took out the sprint, followed by Tariabo. 
Johannes's brother, and Sorum in third for Norway. And again, another one of those sort of more fringy Norwegians podiuming. Um, while Johannes was sort of nowhere to be seen almost, the, that led us to the pursuits, which, by the way, I think the pursuits and the mass starts are the best races. Um, I think they're the best individual races. You've got everyone sort of out on track together. Um, the sprints always, to me, feel like, you know, a qualifying event, not so much an event in their own right. The pursuits is where it's at. The mass starts are where it's at. And maybe that's a basic kind of take, but um, I think they're brilliant. The women's pursuit, Lou Jean backed up her sprint victory with a pursuit victory over Preuss of Germany by 0.3 seconds. So poor old Preuss of Germany loses the individual event by 0.1 of a second, loses the pursuit by 0.3. And you've got Vanessa Voigt finishing uh, in third. So uh, you've got to feel for Preuss of, of Germany there. like. She's lost two races by a combined 0.4 of a second. Um, that left us with the men's pursuit. Again, kind of thought, well, maybe we'll have, you know, JTB work his way back in. But no, it was Seb Samuelson finishing in first, 5.1 seconds ahead of Philip Norath of Germany and 7.2 seconds ahead of Christensen of Norway. That was probably the ski of the season to that point. Um, from Seb Samuelson. He had three misses um, in total, but just went into beast mode on the skis, just blew past everyone else. I think, you know, that race in a lot of ways probably encapsulates the the potential of Samuelson when he's skiing at his absolute best, when he's, you know, he's, even when he's not shooting particularly well, but when he's shooting, you know, maybe fast, he's just such a dominant force on the skis it it hasn't really paid off since i thought maybe that was a massive like change up moment for seb samuelson where he's going to really put himself to the front of the pack um for the rest of the season but as we'll go on to sort of talk about it he's not sort of followed it up and consistency in any sport obviously key it's it's great to have one good result it's great to have one great match or whatever it, you know building greatness is about stacking great days on great days on great days. And uh, as they talked about on the, the broadcast, um, you know, one of the keys to becoming great is not having bad days, you know, not letting an average shoot uh, turn your race into an average race. Always making sure, you know, you, you, you're not getting in your head about it. Uh, and I think that that carries across to all sports. You can look at cricket like that, you know, just because you have bowl one bad ball, don't let that turn into a bad, Bad over just because you were bowl one bad over don't let that turn into a bad spell just because you have one bad spell don't let it turn into a whole bad session don't let that one bad session turn into a whole bad day turn into a whole bad test match turn into a whole bad summer like consistency turn up follow the you know put a good process in place and follow it and, and you'll probably find that more often than not um you know you're there or thereabouts at the end of the season it, it's kind of funny it's like Seb Samuelson, in, in, in a lot of ways, is a great example of that. It, it was, it's probably the standout, one of the two or three standout individual performances from the season for me. But it hasn't really put him 
any closer to winning the overall title because it's been followed by some really inconsistent, it's, it's sort of sandwiched around some really inconsistent displays. Whereas there's other athletes out there who have performed maybe not to those heights, but more consistently, and they are going to be in the frame to, to win the whole thing. Um, so hopefully he can build consistency because he's one of the more exciting uh, athletes to watch on the uh, in the circuit. Um, I want to talk about Johannes Thignes Bow, but I'm gonna I'm gonna circle back to that because I'm gonna highlight two athletes. I'm gonna highlight JTB and JBB um, for you, and then talk about a couple of other little uh, kind of fun storylines so far. But first, let's move to Hot Fieldsen in Austria. We had. Six events there. We had a couple of sprints, a couple of pursuits, and a men's and women's relay. In the men's sprint, you had Taria Bo take out the sprint. The other Bo brother. Uh, he beat Ligrid, who finished second, and Samuelson, who finished in third. In the women's sprint, you had Tandravold for Norway take it out over Elvira Erberg. And then Justine Brazar Boucher finished third. Bookmark that name for later in the podcast. The men's pursuit, it was the breakthrough win of the season uh, in an individual event for Johannes Thignes Bo. Bookmark this moment in the season. Dale Shevdal of Norway finished second, and Taria Bo of Norway finished third. Um, that's going to become a theme, I think. Norwegians dominating at the top of the table. I mean, it always is to an extent, but it's it's been a little almost exaggerated. Um, so far in the back end of this first month of the 2023-24 season. The women's pursuit, Alvira Oberg followed up her second place in the sprint with a first in the pursuit. Lena Heike-Gross of Switzerland finished second, her first podium of the season. I'm not sure if it might have even been her first podium. Um, a, a real hell of a race anyway from her. Uh, she stormed home to take second place over Tandravold, who finished in third for Norway. That left us with the relays, the men's relay. Norway took that one out over France, who finished second, and Germany in third. And the women's relay, Norway won that one as well. Sweden in second and France in third. So this was a weekend where the, the Norwegian biathlon team, you know, really... I mean, not to say they weren't competing, you know, over those weeks in Ostersund, but, you know, some of their top performers like Johannes really, you know, came to the fore here. Tandravold took out a race in the sprint. Um, just looking here, they won five of the six events. Taria in the sprint, Tandravold in the women's sprint, Johannes in the men's pursuit. They won both of the relays. It was only Elvira Erberg in the women's pursuit that broke the Norwegian dominance. She and Heike Gross of Switzerland. Apart from that, it was, um, yeah, a Norwegian love-in there. Which takes us to Lenzerheide, uh, the final event before Christmas. Again, we had six events here. Sprint, sprint, pursuit, pursuit, mass start, mass start. All of those for the women's and men's teams, respectively. Um, we started with the women's sprint, and here we go. I said bookmark, Justine Brazar Boucher, JBB, um, after she finished third in, I'm just trying to remember which race it was, third in the women's sprint in Hot Fields, and 
you go two places better in the women's sprint in Lenzerheide? Brazard Boucher takes out that race over Tandrevold, over Vitozzi. The men's sprint, the Germans, the Germans have done pretty well this season. Um, they've been talking about some changing in the, the ski technology. I can't remember. I can't pretend that I'm in on all the nitty-gritties of ski strategy, but they're basically saying with the changes that have occurred, they believe that the Germans have adapted very quickly. Um, and just in general, the Germans have skied pretty well, shot pretty well. Uh, and Benny Dole wins the sprint over Johannes Thingness Bow. And another German in third in Philip Norath. That led us to the pursuits. And Justine Brazard Boucher follows up her win in the sprint with a win in the pursuit over her countrywoman. Julia Simon, who finished in second, and Skogen from Norway in third. Good result. Uh, a podium finish for Skogen, who's been uh, quietly one of the nice improvers for Norway, I would say. The men's pursuit, we talked about JBB in the women's. It was JTB in the men's pursuit, beating out Stromsheim of Norway and beating out Ligrid of Norway as a hell of a race from Stromsheim, which I'll talk about shortly. The weekend capped off, the pre-Christmas racing capped off with two mass starts, the women's mass start. I said, bookmark these names. Justine Brazard-Boucher made it three from three on the weekend. She finishes first, beating Elvira Erberg in second and Hannah Erberg in third. So three races, three wins for Justine Brazard-Boucher in Switzerland. And that left the men's mass start and Johannes Thignes bow made it two wins from three races, um, but three podiums from three races. He beats out his countrymen, Johannes Dali Shevdal and Taria Bow, and... You know, things concluded before Christmas, maybe as we had imagined they would, but we took a route to get there that we might not have anticipated. It was a very patchy start um, to the 23-24 season for Johannes Thignes Bow. But, you know, when Christmas rocks around, he's wearing that yellow bib again. He's on 484 points in the overall standings. His brother trails him, Taria. By 73 points, he's on 411. Johannes Dale Shevdal in third on 366 points. Andre Stromsheim in fourth on 317 points. And Stella Home Ligrid in fifth on 301 points. So the top five spots in the men's individual rankings this year for the, um, the overall individual performer. All Norwegians with Johannes Thignesbo leading the way with a 73-point advantage over his brother, Taria. And in the women's, it's Justine Brazard-Boucher on 427 points, followed by Ingrid Landmark-Tandrevold on 417. So just a 10-point gap there at the top. Tandrevold, a little bit like Samuelson, had a breakthrough, or what I felt like was a you know, it felt like a bit of a breakthrough win in that sprint um, in Hotfieldsen, but then hasn't, you know, sort of didn't really follow it up as well as she would have lost. She won the sprint, but then surrendered um, her advantage, losing the pursuit, which is the, you know, the follow-up race. She started with an advantage there, but couldn't hold it. Elvira Erberg 
overcame her. Lena Heike Gross overcame her. So Tandrevold, she's 10 points behind Brazar Boucher in the women's standings. Elvira Oberg in third with 393 points. Lisa Vitossi on 386. So there's a grouping of, of you know, biathletes there in the top four where you've only, you're only talking about 41 points between Brazar Boucher in first and Lisa Vitozzi in fourth and Preuss of Germany uh, in fifth, but she is 64 points off Vitozzi in fourth and 105 off the lead. So it's been a great start. It's been a really entertaining start to the season. There's been lots of, of interesting performances. I, I want to talk a bit about Johannes and Fraser Boucher. First off, we'll talk on the men's side. Johannes, you know, uh, a rough start to the season is what you you would sort of say. You know, he started his year second in the relay, so that's a team event. They finished third in the individual, won the relay, uh, won the next relay he raced. So he went second, third, and first. Then 18th in the sprint, 15th in the pursuit. Uh, and he had eight misses in those three individual events. In, in the individual, the sprint, and the pursuit, where he finished third, 18th, and 15th, he had eight misses, which was, you know, pretty high. Um, and, and perhaps kind of more surprisingly, you know, in, we've seen plenty of races where Johannes has missed two or three shots. And a bit like Samuelson in the in the uh, in the pursuit in Ostersund, Johannes has been able to overcome that. Two or three misses hasn't really mattered. He's just skied faster than everyone else and made it up. But it was sort of surprising. He had this sort of slow start to the season. He had this 18th finish in the sprint in Ostersund, the 15th in the pursuit. We wound forward to Hotchfields, and he had an 11th place finish in the sprint to start that event with three misses, and that really did start to concern me that it had, you know, the first two weeks in Austin, you're thinking maybe he's just burning through a bit of bad fuel or whatever. It'll get right in Hotchfields and uh, a little bit like last season where he started a little slow and then really revved up quickly. And then he has this 11th place finish in the sprint and three misses. The shooting doesn't look fantastic, but more importantly, the skiing looked a little bit off, but it was starting to come good. But then he finishes first in the pursuit. Just the one miss takes out the pursuit. And from there, he hasn't really looked back. After that 11th place finish uh, in the Hotchfields and Sprint, Johannes Thignes Bow has gone first, first, second, first, first, and reclaimed his yellow bib by Christmas. And everything is sort of just coming back together. I would still say maybe his shootings made me a bit scared at times, but that dominant um, skiing has, has returned which has been so heartening to see where now you feel like he can afford some misses and and still win, uh, which is nice to see. And that, to me, sort of indicates that he's back into his best form when he, when he can afford some misses and still be skiing well enough to, to well and truly be in races and, in some cases, winning races comfortably despite missing some shots. So I think he's back to... You know, very near his best, and I'm interested to see how he comes out after the Christmas break. You know, you you get those first 
you know, weeks of competition, then you get a couple of weeks off. Maybe that's the perfect time. And now you reset and you're ready to go for the rest of the season. So that's nice to see because I'm a big Johannes Dignes Bow fan and I want to see him do well. That leads me to talk about Justine Brazar Boucher, who has been, you know, she was absolutely exceptional in Lenzerheide. Um, after averaging 3.4 misses across five individual events in Osterson and Hotfieldson, she missed just an average of one shot per race uh, in the event in Switzerland, and all three of those misses came in the pursuit. Uh, she actually shot clean in the sprint and the mass start. So the mass start, so the the sprint already gave her um, the permission to miss a few shots in that pursuit. And yeah, she's just been exceptional. She's been exceptional, you know, with her shooting. Um, well, she's been exceptional in her shooting, particularly in the last, you know, weekend of events that we had. And what I'm interested to see is. You know, is this a one-off event? Because you can look at that. Some, you know, sometimes you'll get, and this is what consistency. You know, it's one thing to say, you know, don't let one one bad shoot turn into a bad race, turn into a bad event. Equally, can you make one good shoot turn into a good race, turn into a good event, turn into a good season? The the best biathletes you know, we'll, we'll do that. They'll, they'll grow that success on success. So that's what I'm interested to see. Is this a one-off event that we're seeing with Brazar Boucher, where it's like she was exceptional this weekend, but maybe, you know, can't follow it up across the rest of the season. There's a lot of good competitors, a couple of who I'm about to talk about in that women's field. So I'm fascinated to see if she can keep it up. I hope she can because she's been so good to watch so far but two of those chasing athletes uh, are the Erberg sisters uh, from Sweden and I, I feel like they maybe found something um, just a different level in Lenzerheide uh, in the mass start both of them you know skied exceptional times they've uh, they had they were second and third Alvira was second um, 5.5 seconds behind Brazar Boucher and Hannah was 5.1 seconds back on that, so 10.6 seconds behind the race winner. And when you take into account the fact that in that mass start, Brazar Boucher shot clean, and I believe uh, Elvira missed at least one, if not two, and Hannah missed a couple herself, you know, just down on ski times, Elvira and Hannah were the two fastest skiers in that event. And I, I don't know, there's just something. Something about the way they they finished that event in Switzerland that made me wonder whether, okay, these two have both found something again. They've both found that elite ski ski speed. They blew past everyone um, to, to claim those second and third places and chewed up a lot of time um, from Brazar Boucher's time on the last lap. And you can put that down too to Brazar Boucher, probably taking a foot off the gas a little bit to make sure she didn't have any falls around the track on the final lap but i don't know that's just my little question another little question coming out of the christmas break is did the erbergs find something like i know alvira's won some races um already she's won the women's pursuit um 
I'm just trying to look through and see if she, she'd won any others. I think that might be the only event she's won outright. I think she's had a few podiums. And out of the two, she's probably looked the better of the two, Erbergs, um, this season, Alvira, so far, despite missing more shots. I feel like she's just, you know, her ski speed, um, she's really showing that the the upside of what she can offer on the skis. Um, so I'm very interested to see how those two come back after the the Christmas break. And just a couple more little stories um, that have been fun to watch this season. One in the men's, one in the women's. Lena Hockey Gross currently ranks ninth in the women's rankings. Her previous best at the end of a season was 19th last year. It was so good to see her get that podium finish. Um, uh, you know, in I'm just trying to see which race that was in. That was in Hot Fields and um, in the pursuit. It was the pursuit. She shoots really well. Um, probably could have had, you know, a few other podiums if maybe she'd shot even better. A couple of crucial moments where you felt the pressure maybe just got to just a little bit, um, particularly at home in the Swiss events. Uh, I hope she can keep this going because she's one of the most entertaining uh, biathletes to watch. Um, she shoots fast, which is always exciting. To watch as well um so if i think if she can keep this great shooting up i think she's going to be there or thereabouts in terms of that top 10 sort of finish i'd love to see her get another podium or two before the season's wrapped up but most importantly i'd like to see her hang on to that sort of top 10 ranking um which would be really cool and she's just been yeah a fun story it's nice to see different athletes cycle up and, and have great seasons and you know, maybe go on to transform their careers. The other one is Andre Stromsheim of Norway. He currently sits fourth in the overall men's rankings. Um, it's his third season um, with competition at World Cup level. Uh, previously, he's been, you know, in the junior stuff or the IBU Cup. Um, his previous best finish in a men's season was 36th. So, you know, I think it's going to be hard to hang on to fourth. There's a lot of great competitors around him. But, you know, it he had that unbelievable second-place finish uh, in the pursuit um, in Lenzerheide, blowing past Ligrid on the final lap. So he was just an absolutely a, a maniacal final ski from Stromsheim, and he just showed that top-end, um, you know, just brutal pace and power and just the hunger i think they talked about a lot of the broadcast of it It was just hunger just hungry to get that that not just a podium place but a second place um and i i said to talia when i was watching i was like i'm really interested to see how he does in the mass start uh after such a high in in the pursuit and he had a mass start meltdown he had five misses after that blistering second place finish in the pursuit and I just thought that again highlighted another another great example of that building consistency. You have to build consistency, and you know he had a bad shoot. I believe it was I think he had two misses in the first shoot of the mass start, um, and and to me that let a bad shoot become a bad day. And he looked pretty PO'd at himself at the end, 
So I'm interested too to see how he comes back from the Christmas break. Has he made a breakthrough in that pursuit race to where he's now unlocked another level of his skiing and now it's a matter of 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 making, you know, finding consistency? Or was that anomalous? Was that just a one-off thing that we won't see repeated? Um, just a tantalizing glimpse of maybe like, oh, that that could have been something I could I could replicate, but I never can. Um, yeah, I'm fascinated to see. Can that be done again? Will it be done again? Uh, and and how does an up and coming, you know, athlete like him respond after the high and then the low? The high of the pursuit, the second place finish, then the low of the meltdown in the mass start, where he you know, misses five shots and you know, is totally furious with himself. Uh, it's life is tough on the fringes for athletes, you know, when they're competing for spots in squads and that sort of thing. And, um, you know, someone like Johannes can maybe have a five miss event and go, ah, well, I'll get it next time. Now, Stromsheim probably has less, less rope in that regard. You know, he can't afford as many of those events, um, but he is skiing. He is competing particularly well at the moment, particularly, uh, you know, he displayed a lot in that pursuit um, second place finish. So there's lots to look forward to in the rest of the biathlon season. Can't wait. I think we've got an event um, maybe next weekend. I hope it's next weekend. Anyway, I'm looking forward to it. Um, but that's it for me. That's all. Um, go and check out the Will Blitz because Will's doing fantastic work. Um, I'll be back. I'm, I'm hoping, I'm actually hoping to join forces with Will and do a top five sporting moments of 2023, our top five. So, you know, just our favorite five moments from the 2023 sporting calendar um, before we hit New Year's Eve. Um, that's the that's the plan. We'll see how that works around work and all those sorts of other commitments. But go and check out the Will Blitz. Check out other episodes of the JBSC. And uh, yeah. Hope you're getting a lot of sport in you over this holiday period, whatever form that takes. Until next time, thanks so much for listening. <laughs>